Commons Radio Hour, uh, joined actually by Josh Deeth and Marty Scott from Revolution in Chicago, not in Louisville. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have John Ronan with us today, but we do have myself, Michael Moeller, and one David Satterley as well. Guys, thanks for thanks for hosting us today. This is fun. Welcome to the Revolution Brewery here in Chicago. Yeah. So you guys were founded around 2010, I believe. Uh, at that time, Josh, your title was chairman of the party. Yeah, I stick with that these days. Yeah. Still sticking around. And then, uh, Marty, your title? Uh, Barrel Program Manager. Awesome. So why are we in Chicago, right? So we're on our way up to Great Taste in the Midwest, up in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, which uh, you two have both attended before. Anything to say about that festival? We're first timers, so. Yeah, best beer fest in the country, if you ask me. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a great time and so close to home for us. Um, it's one of the festivals where a lot of the brewers and a lot of the producers want to be there. Uh, it's not just, um, you know, junior sales folks who are being forced to go up there to, to set up jockey boxes, work a festival and, and spend their weekend. It's, it's someplace that uh, the brewers in the region want to go um, see each other, catch up and also have a pretty good time usually. Yeah. So we're going to hang out tonight in Chicago, get into some fun stuff. Have either of you ever been to Louisville before? Sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. My, my father's from Louisville. Okay. Oh, <laughs> have any, have any experiences, beers in Louisville of note? Uh, I've only been down to Louisville once as an adult. Uh, and I put a hurting on myself in, uh, Schnitzelberg. Uh, that's where we live. Yeah. I, I stayed at, um, a grail house, um, yeah. mm-hmm. for a couple of nights. It was outstanding. Um, but yeah, I need to get back down and do some real uh, exploration. Josh. I once went to this amazing event at the Holy Grail with uh, Will Oldham of Bonnie Prince Billy and Sam Caljoan, and they made a, a different food course, a different beer, and Will sang a different song for like every course of the evening. We're upstairs with like 16 of your closest friends and <laughs> everyone else trying to get in on the action, and it was amazing night. So. That's a that's a beautiful atmosphere there, especially in the upstairs. I used to work at Louisville Beer Store, one of the other, you know, companies that Tyler and Lori own. Um, mm-hmm. Owned, I guess, RIP to Louisville Beer Store. No longer, no longer there. Uh, but yeah, I actually remember one of those um, similar events where we had um, Will Oldham come in and and spend some records there as well. And they they've recently renovated that space, like in the last two years. So when you go back, check it out, see if you you like the old style, new style. But it's it's a little bit different now. Cool. Look forward to checking out. Yeah. yeah. So you guys have been around a long time. Um, you guys probably predated most of what Louisville Beer is uh, going on, what, your 12th year here? Um, and that's kind of when, when Louisville Beer was in its infancy. Um, Chicago Beer as a whole, do you, do you want to talk about like how that's kind of grown up throughout the years? Sure. I guess that's my department. And um, like I, I was telling you earlier, I went to the Great Tastes when I was close to being 21 years old, let's say. And I um, don't want to get anybody in trouble, but that's when I first got into the beer scene here in Chicago in the summer of 95. And um, 
there were just a handful of breweries. You know, there was Goose Island, there was a Rock Bottom downtown, and a couple other breweries, breweries in the suburbs and places. And it's very sporadic. And then there was like the early crop of Chicago brewers, half acre, who started contracting and then built their Lincoln Avenue brew pub that's now sold to Hop Butcher, who I think they just brewed their first. They brewed with Matt from Half Acre last weekend, the weekend before. So they're just starting to brew at Lincoln. Um, and um, Metropolitan doing the loggers. Now they, they relocated many years ago, close by us, just down the street. Should definitely check that out. Great, like, riverfront outdoor beer garden. And um, yeah, like, the, the three of us in particular kind of bonded as like a cohort of breweries that opened up. And we opened up our brew pub first in 2010. And then a couple years later, we opened up this space here and have expanded it. But th those were kind of the earlier days of craft. And um, a lot, there were a lot of early, early brewers that failed that didn't work out. Goose Island was the only one who in the city proper who uh, kind of started and made it all the way through to today. And, you know, we'll, we'll do another episode about their story. But yeah, they're like, you had two brothers in the suburbs who's kind of the key suburban brewery. And so things evolved. And now there's just like a gajillion breweries <laughs> like there is in every city. Yep. Tons of breweries, especially in the like, I'm a city person. I live my life mostly in the city. And um, but like there's a lot of suburban breweries out there building names for themselves these days with big tap rooms where the land is plentiful and there's parking and stuff like that. Uh, which we have z zero of for customers here at Revolution. But, you know, there's just lots of niche breweries here. And we're in the Avondale neighborhood. And if you go just a couple blocks on the other side of the highway, you're in Logan Square where our brew pub is. And I think like within like two miles of the brew pub, there's like 15 breweries now. Wow. Or something like that. Um, so of all stripes and sizes, you have a lot of like Belgian focus. There's like sub segments of the Belgian and wild focus breweries. Um, yeah, lots of fun stuff happening. So with that growth, you're seeing like specific diversity or are people picking a, a niche and staying with that? Yes, I think Chicago, if I would talk about our scene a little bit, people definitely tried to pick their niche, niche, niche and uh, their identity and be who they want to be. You don't like nobody does like the it used to be like you walk into a brew pub and it'd be like the same six beers, like a pale ale, an amber ale, one stout, a, a light beer for people who like it light, you know, and then, you know, that formula is long gone out the window. You have to tell people who you are and what you specialize in. Mm -hmm. uh, a question I'm sure you've gotten a million times over the years is, um, you know, just like people come up to you, they're like, what's your favorite beer? And our, our response has kind of turned into... What do you want? What's your what's your what's your style? What are you looking for? You want a meal? You want to sit down? You want to have this? Um, but I definitely agree. You know, starting off with those six core, and it's just the same thing. And and there's a, there's a purity to it that we all enjoy. I mean, it, the brewer's favorite beer. You know, kind of go back to the pilsner style, and if you can do that, it's a good barometer for how you're approaching other beers. Yeah, we have a bunch of lager focused breweries. I mentioned Metropolitan. They have a wide variety. They like pride themselves on uh, not having made IPA. You know, they talk about it all the time and we're an IPA brewery. So I'm just like, yes, yeah. <laughs> every time I hear that. And there's a couple other people like that, but they have like such awesome lagers that we're coming into Oktoberfest season. And that's mm -hmm. like, that's the bread and butter for them. And uh, uh, Dovetail is another great brewery in yeah. the city with just awesome lagers. They do the Kolsch service like they do at the Holy Grail sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, and you know we we make a bunch of lagers. We've been making a bunch of lagers at our brew pub. We just uh, we could highlight a couple of those. Those are fun. Yeah, certainly. We passed that on the way yeah. here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, outside now might still be on. That's kind of like a pre-pro uh, lager with some uh, malted corn, I believe, in it. We've got a sunflower wheat lager coming up. So it's you know with toasted sunflower seeds, I think that, and it really comes on at the end. I've tasted it out of the tank. It hasn't been released yet, and um, it's like a style of beer that we heard about that was brewed in Ukraine. It's the second kind of, you know, Ukraine-oriented beer we did. We did a beer called Give Beets a Chance with uh, roasted beets, oh, smoked good. beets, and beet puree in it. And it was it was in terms of stout. See, and Michael then, would love that. Oh, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm into that. <laughs> and then um, what we got a rye. Rye Dunkel. Yeah. Rye Dunkel coming out in time for our Oktoberfest celebration. And um, so, yeah. It's nice to make it. We make it. We're a pretty diverse brewery. We don't do everything, but we do a good amount of the things. Yep. Have you all ever done uh, a Kentucky Common? I have brewed a Kentucky Common when I worked at the Goose Island Brew Pub in the year of 100 beers, which was the 10 year anniversary of Goose Island in '98. Um, the brewer, pub brewer at the time, Matt Brennan, um, came up with this idea to brew 100 different beers. By the end, of, we, we served and or brewed the 100 beers. Like on the last day of the year, we brewed the last beer. Oh, that's good. Wow. So it was like uh, Greg Hall's like baby ale for it's called the Epidur Ale um, for his, his coming first, <laughs> oh coming <God>. child. <laughs> um, and that was brewed on like the last day of the year, which was a whole story for that day. But and one of the beers we brewed was a Kentucky Common and we it was Matt's idea, not mine. <laughs> and uh, like he, we just mashed in and then went home, or like at the end of the day, mashed in and came back in the next day. I remember like we opened the door, it was just like blue cheese, oh. uh, just like uh, for everyone listening at home. I think we're going to call that butyric acid, yeah. and um, it. Uh, like most people thought the beer was vile and um we sold through some of it but we did have to dump some of it but there was like one or two people who were just like i love that beer it's like my favorite beer <laughs> we're like okay something for everyone <laughs> yeah. something for everyone but it was light and you know and it had a thing to it uh, probably like the first like souring like mash hot side souring that i have ever done we're doing a lot of kettle souring here at revolution these days sour your beers after you strain off the wort not with the mash is my <laughs> general recommendation yeah we've we've led a a small charge to introduce that as the state beer of kentucky being one of the indigenous styles to the u.s so we always like to ask um speaking of the diversity if you're watching us here uh we're sitting in front of you know massive barrel storage rigs what about seven barrels high um and we do have barty here uh so talk about a little bit um your guys you know traditional styles and then you know what was the pivot to get you to getting into more of these like longer term aging more experimental innovative brews yeah uh so we are in the 10th year of the deepwood series which is the barrel program here at kedzie uh we've done some limited barrel stuff over at the brew pub over the years but it's never really been included as part of the deepwood program uh but over here it started just you know we we wanted to put barley wine into barrels, we wanted to put uh, oatmeal stout into barrels, uh, eventually a rye wine, kind of like the, the the core beers. We started with porters and scotch ales. Um, and in the early days, we weren't getting 
the best barrels as far as uh, like microbio is concerned. We were getting some barrel contamination, um, and especially in the the lower ABV beers, the porters. Um, when it worked out, it worked great. Uh, great tasting, approachable barrel aged beers. Uh, but over the years, uh, we've increased the the base ABV going to barrels to to not lose them. We haven't lost a barrel to infection or a spirit barrel to infection in about seven years now and, <laughs> and counting. That's probably about 5,000 oak really barrels uh, with a with 100% clearance rate. Um, so the first step was about quality. Uh, how do we increase the quality of the program? Uh, how do we? How do I not worry about losing my job? Because I like this job. I like it a whole lot. Uh, and I don't- You are not in danger of losing <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Josh. I would make a list of employees at Revolution and, you know, you would be up there. <laughs> you just made the list. All right. And now I'm blushing. Uh, so the first step was quality. Um, and once we kind of got that figured out, then we can move on to stage two, uh, which was consistency. Um, and, uh, you know, some of the barrels, they'll they'll come in. You know, when you have to order 100 at a time, you don't get to go select them barrel by barrel. You've got beer in the tank. You need to get that beer out of the tank. You need to get it onto lumber. The freshest, best barrels that are available to you today are what you wind up ordering most of the time. Um, and they can come in and contribute to ABV uh, pickup to your aging, or they could pick up, uh, you know, just over four in, in really wet cases. Um, but because we're not in control of that and because we're doing these beers that uh, the wort is sugar toxic at the beginning of fermentation, it's so high sugar that uh, the, the yeast really struggles to get going in a lot of cases. And then it finishes in a state of alcohol toxicity. So telling it to start at 32 Play-Doh and finish right at 7 Play-Doh, um, the yeast doesn't really like to do that uh, repeatedly. So um, to get more repeatability, for stage two of kind of growth and development in the program, we started producing sweet and dry components of everything intentionally, figuring out where they land and then bringing them back together in just the right quantities so that it gives the control back to the brewers, the blenders, um, so we can produce the beers as we intend them. So if a barley wine blends and finishes at only 13.5 ABV, um, we can blend in the right amount of sugar to match that desired ratio um, if the beer comes out at 16 ABV. Uh, so we have these metrics that we follow for blending uh, as far as balance, and that gives us repeatability at, at various uh, alcohol and tannin levels. Um, and we just kind of puts the control back on our side of the equation. Then the third is about complexity. Uh, we've got a formula about sugar and time and uh, won't go too far into that, yeah. uh, but it's been a three-prong approach uh, over the years from the very early days. Uh, again, first focusing on improving quality uh, and then getting some semblance of even in a vintage year program, uh, having some kind of consistency and then really trying to maximize complexity and, and flavor intensities um, for when we really wanna push something over the top. Because that's what people want too. You see what people like, and you want to make more of that. And that it's it's over time. It's been with the complexity that you call it. You know, mm -hmm. it's not just sweetness. It's that barrel wood, the the development of the sugar flavors. Oh, absolutely. In the barrel and. Um, and yeah, I I think that word balance comes up a lot, and I've been hearing it a lot more recently um, with 
some of the newer breweries that that has been this palate assaulting flavors, right? Mm-hmm. And and really uh, turning back towards that balance of yeah, this is so we we are drinking one of these barrel aged beers right now. The the Thundertaker. Crack another one too. If you want yeah. to do that too. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite the one too right here. Now let's talk about Thundertaker first. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, Thundertaker was a, a imperial rye stout uh, produced in collaboration with Benny's uh, Benny's Beverage Depot uh, here in Chicagoland. Um, they hand selected uh, about forty oak barrels from uh, Yellowstone, um, or I guess Limestone Branch. Limestone yeah. Branch. Yeah, yeah Limestone yep. Branch. Uh, the, so the Yellowstone bourbon barrels, uh, as well as some really really nice hand picked uh, Buffalo Trace Mash One bourbon barrels. So they came out to Kentucky to do that. I have to imagine they did. Yes. Okay. Awesome. The yeah. folks at Benny's, uh, the Whiskey Hotline, they kind of call themselves are going all around the world selecting all types of liquors and they're just so large in scale that they can they can do that and then they can sell through it in no time and move on to the next one and so if you were to walk into the binnies today how many different types of selected barrel liquor is there i think you know hundreds probably and there's some in reserve and so Part of the deal usually with these liquor companies that, oh, you select the barrels, we'll ship you the X amount of cases. And what do you want to do with these barrels? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's hard. Vinny's doesn't make make the liquids themselves. And so they'll ship them or the distributor will come. Sometimes they put them on display. But lately, it's not just us. They've been working with other breweries around to try to repurpose the barrels and collaborate in that way. And it's fun because the barrels then have a story. Someone selected the barrels, mm-hmm. not, not us, but our partner did. And um it's cool. It's very all kinds. Yeah. Um, and so the, the rice stout here, uh, talking about balance, uh, this is actually chemically quite lean for our standards. Um, you know, we, we take a sugar concentration, divide it by the alcohol, and that kind of tells you how lean this is going to be uh, or how sweet and sumptuous uh, it could potentially be, uh, notwithstanding tannin and other things that factor in, uh, but just like the the easy things to quantify uh, to get you in the ballpark as a blender. Uh, this is 16.2% alcohol, uh, and it's only six Play-Doh, or only 6% sugar blended. Um, all the rest of the barrel-aged beers have more sugar per unit of alcohol, um, but the rye here, um, the chocolate rye especially, it gives you all the sweetness and a, and a nice little kind of sweet bitter chocolate right up front, and then it almost immediately uh, yields to the barrel and the bourbon and the alcohol, um, and you just get this beautiful dynamic experience that taken all together at once is perfectly balanced despite a pretty heady ABV and a reasonably lean uh, sugar concentration, especially uh, when you consider a lot of our contemporaries. Yeah, and it does have that like dry finish and just unbelievable for 16.2%. And I believe Josh just opened up something special. Yeah, we went and grabbed a can of VSOJ from the cooler here. This is just looking on the bottom, 2021. June twenty uh, something, June 29th, VSOJ. So that's uh, number two. Oh yeah, of that. And um, there we go. You can liquid the lips and cheers, cheers, cheers guys. Cheers. cheers. And you and you were kind of talking a little bit before the podcast of like getting into the barrel side, and you you specifically said we wanted to put barley wine in barrels. <laughs> Was this a first iteration, or this has grown, or? Oh, it's, it's 
it's grown uh, considerably. Uh, we used to struggle to, to sell barley wine in the early days, um, at least compared to, to now. Um, but this is the same base recipe, straight jacket. Uh, this is in its 10th year. This was the only surviving beer to make it through every single vintage year of the Deepwood program uh, as straight jacket. And as we lost fewer barrels to infection, we had more barrels left over. Uh, we started learning how to blend and produce intentionally sweet, intentionally dry uh, components to, to bring these together at different ages and different barrels. Um, and uh, VSOJ was kind of like the the first time we absolutely nailed it uh, on the blending side. Um, and it's still straight jacket, but we just, we manipulate the finishing gravity and the starting gravity. Uh, and then we manipulate the age and everything. Um, this particular example is four different batches, uh, one year, one and a half, two and a half and five year components. Hmm. Um, and uh, normally we can do all this blending on paper and it, more than puts us in the ballpark, it usually gets us pretty darn close to what we intended to do. Um, for this one, uh, we found that that five-year component, which was the oldest component we had ever put into a packaged beer, um, kind of dominated all the other components. It was so flavor active. Um, we actually had to take some of that out of the blend after we had blended it all together and replace it with some younger beer because uh, it was so oaky um, that uh, it was unrecognizable as, as straight jacket. It was just beaver food. Um, it's a good way to put that. <laughs> I've never heard that. So, so you all are, I, I didn't know the, the year part. This is sort of a lambic X style of the way you're blending multiple years together. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We, we look to traditional methods as often as possible, sure. uh, to increase complexity, to keep it traditional, uh, not having to rely on a endless parade of adjuncts. We love playing with, with adjuncts and getting like playful with it and having a good time. Um, especially if those adjuncts have been used in, in beer production for hundreds of years. So yeah, lambic winemaking, um, all these kinds of things, um, inform our approach to these beers, both in process as well as the flavors and aromas that we hope to achieve. Like when you start out, so, you know, so straight jacket, the original straight jacket was made at the brew pub. And then the first, um, so that was, it's also one of the beers that started there and then came into the production brewery into the deep wood program and grew over time versus like Death Star we created here at the production brewery. We had done some other stouts, but we kind of wanted to pick a fresh name and and build something new up. And so you learn, you start, when you brew a really small batch, you fill like a couple barrels. Generally the, we would fill two at the brew pub and, you, and then you empty it and you release it and you talk about it and it's great. As your barrel program grows and especially as things happen and change, you realize as your batches are different over time. And then suddenly you have like the multitudes and it's like, do you want to try to a act like they're not different? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> do you want to give them a new name and release them when you realize something is significantly different? Do you want to then blend it in and learn to learn all you can about all those differences and use it as a tool as your advantage? And that's the, the program that Marty just described. But I think back to the old days when we just had like one batch, mm -hmm. you know, and we didn't do that at the beginning. You can't, when we first opened up the brew pub and it's Chicago, you know, people expect barrel aged beer even 10, 12 years ago. And it's like, sorry, we don't have it on like <laughs> yeah. they want. It's like, there's some in the basement. I can take you on a tour and, and you can look at the barrels, but it's there. We ready, promise like we, we can have it. <laughs> it's coming. And uh, like we opened up in February. And so it was cool because then the, the next winter, we were able to have barrel aged beer when the, when it gets cold 
and when people kind of expect to have it and want to have it. So, but not in that first February. <laughs> no, that doesn't lend much in the way of blending when you only have two or three barrels. Yeah. Yeah. But now how many barrels, Marty, in the program? We've got capacity for just over 1500. Um, now that we're releasing kind of all over the calendar, uh, there's no well-defined barrel season, at least not as well-defined as it used to be. Um, you know, we'll have up to 1500 or so barrels at our max capacity. Think today, right now we're sitting at about 1130, 1140. Uh, we just released, um, uh, three brands, coconut Deeth, Lumberstruck, and Thundertaker. Uh, to the tune of uh, just over 100 barrels. Uh, we'll be getting ready here shortly. We've got uh, 50 barrels we're going to fill up in the next couple of weeks. And then a few weeks after that, we're going to empty close to 300 to support uh, Deeth Tar, Cafe Deeth, and uh, Death by Currents. What, what does the barrel sourcing look like for you all? Great question. Uh, we do have a couple of distillery and supplier direct connections. We've been working with Whistle Pig out in Vermont. Uh, we've done, this will be the third year that we've done a boss barrel. Um, so we take the, the boss hog finishing barrel uh, and do one of our kind of base liquids, but dressed up a little bit, uh, age in the boss barrels. Um, or if Benny's are selecting barrels for us. Otherwise, it's pretty much just going through Midwest Barrel Company out of Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, Dr. Ben Losicki and crew, he's actually coming by the brewery tomorrow. Um, they do all the QC work that uh, a barrel wrangler needs to have done before the barrels arrive. Um, you don't want to find out that you just ordered a truckload and half of those barrels are leaky and, mm -hmm. and not usable. Uh, so they, they take that worry out for us. Um, and, uh, we're, we're a priority customer for them. So I get the text messages when they do have really cool story barrels coming out. Uh, we get uh, one of the first cracks at them. Um, but it's, it's really simple these days. We just call it Midwest barrel company. We tell them we've got beer in the tank, how many barrels we're going to need over the next you know couple of months and when we're going to need them. And they do a fantastic job of selecting the right barrels for the right time um, and the right beers. Uh, it's yeah, it's shockingly simple. Are they are they harder to come by now, though, than they were before? Like, how's that? How's that trend? We've been fortunate uh, to, to partner with Midwest Barrel when they were still a very young company. So we we get more priority than they would probably like us mm -hmm. to acknowledge uh, publicly. Uh, so for us personally, it hasn't really gotten that much more difficult uh, or even more difficult. But we're buying like, like at least half a truckload usually. Sure. And you know, when you're in that level, then it's like, just like for us, the, uh, an analog is like, what do we do with the spent barrels? You know, and we used to have public sales and people would pull up in their Honda Accords mm -hmm. and be like, Oh, just put it in the back seat. And they're like, well, it doesn't fit, you know? <laughs> and, and now you get a, yeah, 500 barrels to get rid of. We've just stopped putting out that call because that's 500 Honda Accords or, you know, a couple people bring a pickup truck in the city and it's just, oh, you'll take a whole truckload of these. Great. Let's make a deal and just get them out of here. And that's the same kind of thing we're providing to either Midwest as a broker through to the distilleries. Sure. Bourbon has grown. There's a lot of barrels and you've just got to talk to the right people at the right time who want to move a whole bunch of them. The good ones, of course. And um, freshness is super important. Like Marty said, we always have the beer in the tank so the barrels don't sit here empty at the brewery. Usually like we're talking days. Yeah, uh, I will say it's become a lot harder to get uh, our favorite barrels. I love Buffalo Trace barrels, sure. especially the mash two. Um, I, I would take a, a higher percentage of leaky mash twos if it meant I could <laughs> at least get my hands on more uh, mash twos. But Buffalo Trace, uh, they're they're sending a lot of their spent lumber to um, 
to whiskey manufacturers who can use second use barrels. Um, I think they, there was some, uh, some business dealings. So they've got a parent company or partner company uh, that they're supplying what sure. I understand to be the lion's share of their spent barrels. Um, other than that, no, uh, the, the variety of barrels that Midwest is able to supply us is always increasing. Uh, we've been using Willet as our workhorse recently, and now Willet is- Hard uh, to get barrels from Willet. Oh, now Midwest Barrel is the only place you can yeah. get uh, your Willet barrels. We just got a bunch of family estate bourbon and rye of uh, several year descriptions. Uh, we put some real special stuff into those. <laughs> yep. um, and those, those are fantastic workhorse barrels. I mean, for those to be your everyday barrels, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's pretty fortunate. Yeah, definitely pretty fortunate. <laughs> the the exclusivity of it is very real. Um, I guess uh, one one trend I've seen a little bit is that it, it used to not be that you could announce what barrels you were using, or not so much with the distillery partners. Is that is that changed a little bit? To some extent, uh, we we do receive barrels from time to time, like the apple brandy barrels that we. Uh, used to produce apple brandy ryeway, uh, a rye wine and apple brandy barrels a number of years ago. We were not even, they, uh, Ben couldn't, Ben at Midwest couldn't even tell us where the barrels came from or he wasn't permitted to. Um, these days, um, you find that uh, a lot of distillers don't mind when Revolution mentions what okay, variety of barrel That's we're, it, yeah. we're using. <laughs> or you can come to the tap room right now and look at the barrel. And like, we're not hiding them. We don't oh, have yeah. to put a curtain up. Yeah. And people love to hang around the barrels. Right. And it's like they're on display almost. Uh, and so, you know, these are the thorny issues of trademarks and intellectual property. We try not to abuse it. We would never put another distillery's name into the brand name of the beer, or like the primary marketing. Mm -hmm. uh, we tend like people ask and they want to know. Sometimes it doesn't go on the can, but it goes on to, for example, the website mm -hmm. and then just to say it, like it hasn't really happened, but to us, but barrels. But if someone came and was called you up and was all upset, a website is real easy to change. Right. A can is not. And so, but like Whistle Pig is the good example. It's, it's a, it's a full on collaboration. Yeah, We've I done like that. five projects with them. Both they've made whiskey, aged whiskey in our former barrels and vice versa. And so there it's just like, when, when you get to the right people and you talk to them, you realize you know, we're helping them, they're helping us. Yeah, it's definitely complimentary. Um, it's good to see that kind of change. Uh, it'd be awesome if I'm sure the barrels showed up with a sample of Willet and then you send some back. <laughs> we can't get any family estate bourbon, but we can get the barrel, I guess. Yeah. You yep. should have asked us before we came. <laughs> I've got I've got some uh, family estate rye up at my desk. Excellent. The rye you can find. Yeah. 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 I, see, I see some others. The Bartown Bourbon Company got there. Or no? Oh, I'm seeing Willet. Yeah, yeah, that's Willet. Yeah, it's okay. just a lot. It's a wall. A lot of Willet. There you go. Yeah, we've got a, a lot of Elijah Craig, eight year, Elijah Craig, 10 year, uh, Heaven Hill, Willet, Buffalo Trace, uh, some Weller, some Stag, and some Blantons uh, hiding back here as well. And, the, and these come in ready to go. You don't treat them in any way? We CO2 purge them mm -hmm. beforehand. Uh, we like to, we know they're going to oxidize the beer. Um, but we want the barrels to oxidize the beer, not bad brewers, uh, or like naughty brewers. Uh, so let the barrels do what they're going to do to the beer, but let's not accelerate it through shoddy practices. Uh, so yeah, we'll do a CO2 purge. Um, you know, we'll, we'll open up a couple of them. We'll look into them, uh, while we're purging and see, you know, do we have a lot of wet barrels or are they all, you know, 
dry to the to first look anyway. Um, but other than that, no, it, the Midwest Barrel they do all the testing for you. If they if they receive a, a couple of barrels that uh, look a little bit more seasoned than typical, uh, they'll do pressure tests on them. They'll make sure they hold uh, compressed air for you know a few minutes, a couple psi. And uh, if if they're not confident that it's going to be good for the the brewer, um, they sell it as furniture grade. So oh, okay. uh, very little inspection needs to be done on these. It's just yeah. how wet are they? Like spirit barrel, which is the vast majority of our barrels. If we were to get like a, a wine barrel or some barrel that had a fruit or something in it, you'd treat it differently at that point. Sure. But like the spirit barrels, it's like it's sanitized. It's got the spirit in there. <laughs> and, you know, it's yeah. like as a brewer and you want clean because that's what we're doing. We're doing all clean here and um it, it, it's it's ready to go and then you, you already touched on it a little bit but operating at the scale that you all do and achieving that quality and consistency across batches that really comes down to the, the science of it oh yeah marty's program his formulas that he kind of laid out very quickly yeah but you know that's the essence of the program that's uh you know we do we do pasteurize these beers we're happy to talk about that and, and share it it's like yeah there is an element of, let's say you, you make a batch and it's got 50 barrels, right? One bad barrel could ruin the whole batch. Um, and there's that element. These are strong beers. These are not likely beers. You know, you test the pH of every barrel. You taste every barrel. Um, we're at a point where we're not like running full microbiology on every single barrel. And there's always a chance you could take a sample of one part of a barrel and not get it, but there's something growing or in the act of moving it. So uh, it does like barrel aged beers have this element where you're taking 50 things and putting them together and then like you're doing that. And then a couple of days later, it's going into a can. And so there's not a lot of time to ensure it's 100% clean. And so the pasteurization step just gives peace of mind to that. And that's, uh, that's, but that, that's like a final, final, it's become kind of minor in the end of the day related to all the other quality stuff in the blending, the flavor aspects of quality. Yeah, certainly. We, like Josh said, we taste and pH every single barrel before it gets blended in, uh, to, to what will become the mother batch. Um, and we pasteurize it all just to be sure we all take, we also take sterile samples of every lot. So every batch of beer across every barrel variety that that batch went into. Sometimes we're going to fill a, a batch of beer and we get 20 Willets and 20 Buffalo Trace. So we'll sample both of those lots. So every lot uh, in the stacks uh, gets sampled and gets run through the full QC um, regimen. So we know that there's no widespread or batch wide micro issues. And then we taste and pH every single barrel before the blend. And then we'll take a sterile sample of the blend, run it on PCR and everything else. Uh, and even when that comes back negative and it's always come back negative, we still pasteurize. Uh, just, it's, it's just a, an insurance policy at that point. We keep the barrels on site. So we have like control of the program here. Um, climate control we're sitting in the tap room right now where we have air conditioning not all parts of the brewery have air conditioning but the barrels are here with us in the nice environment you're like the barrels are like your aunt who came to visit and and you want to leave her in the nice air conditioned area you don't want to put her in the hot room off to the side you got to like take care of her like that so that's part of the you know as we've expanded the program and things like that we've we've gotten to the point where the times we've actually made a little more of particular batches than the market and people wanted to buy 
Uh, people love like the small VSO stuff that are in limited quantity. We could make and sell more of that. Those sell out in 10, 15 minutes sometimes, but yeah. So the program is in like a great place. And sometimes you actually rein it back. Of course, there was like the COVID experience. We pivoted to like uh, buying it on the internet rather than waiting in line and you could come pick it up. We'd load it, you know, pop the trunk, please type of thing. And people liked it. It was like a customer service element, but they missed the parties, but the parties have come back, but we've killed the lines when people are still like the, tried to combine the ordering ahead of time aspect. We just launched a season ticket program where you could buy one four pack of all of the releases all year long. And then you just have to do it one time and you don't have to like wake up in the morning. And if you're not a morning person and, and fight for the battle each time and you're kind of guaranteed and that has benefits for the customer and for us, it's like, we know we're going to sell X amount of all of this stuff. Some of the beers go in wider distribution out to the market where uh, you can get like, we can go to states like, you know, 10 different states. will get these little bits of these beers if you go to the nice liquor store. And, uh, but, and a lot of them just stay, stay here at the brewery only. Yeah, uh, we, we have them right across the river in southern Indiana, yeah. but we don't but have them in, in Kentucky. Kentucky. <laughs> Someday, maybe. Someday. It's a quick, it's a quick hop across the river. We got some we got some background music now. Um, so we, we are staying in the uh, <laughs> I like it. It's all right. It's kind of nice. No, no, I like it. You can right. say it. No, we're, we're good. Um, so we're, we're staying uh, what in the river north. That's that's a place, yeah. right? OK, yeah. so that. Yeah. So we're staying in that neighborhood. This, this is really my first time spending any time significant time in Chicago at all. Uh, you know, if you if you were us first time, you have 24 hours kind of in that area. What would you suggest to do in those 24 hours as far as a uh, place to eat, place to drink, and then something maybe cultural? Maybe that's a, I don't know, maybe that's a, you know, sports related. Maybe that's more art related. Take that as you will. Yeah, you're pretty close to downtown. So it's a great place for culture. Like the Chicago River and the River Walk has seen a big renaissance in the last decade or so. Um, there's a whole bunch of bars along the River Walk. You can take like the boat tours to see the city. And it's just like, those will always be popular forever and ever. It's a great downtown along the river. It's summertime. So like spend your time outside would be always my advice. I'd be thinking right now about places with like a nice beer garden. Um, there are still a couple streets that are shut down. You said you went to Cruz Blanca. Yeah. They have that, like, that side boulevard there that um, they've shut down. That's great because that's almost become their own property and like they close it off for cars. And so you can walk, you can bike by and they can put tables in the way. Uh, Chicago is a city of neighborhoods. And so my my main gut is to like get out of River North, you know, and get into a neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, there's not a lot of breweries, for example, down over there. I think um, what the Crush by Giants opened up or had you know opened trying to open up fits and starts during COVID. That's the folks from Dry Hop Brewers down there with like a brew pub style thing. It's like land is expensive downtown, so it's not a place to have a big production brewery or anything like that. But um, yeah, like where we are in this neighborhood. There's just so much to go and see. Um, well, we're just we're we're excited to be here, so it's fine. <laughs> uh, and I mean, we're gonna we're gonna hang out here for a while. Now that the tap room's open, we're gonna stick around and drink some of the, some more beers here. Uh, but uh, David, any, any last thoughts? Any last? Uh, no, thank you so much for uh, sitting down sharing this. Um, the beer obviously is a testament to the years and quality and complexity that you've built into this program and. Um, it, it speaks for itself. And, and when you have that, there's, you know, that's, that's it. I mean, you don't need any, any further explanation. That's, that's what beer is all about. 
Any any events or releases coming up that we should know about? Oh, there's so much. Like, what are we going to have? At, I wish I had my list of what we're pouring at the Great Taste. I know some of these barrel-aged beers will be featured during the fest. We'll be up at the Essen House on Friday night where we release our Oktoberfest for the years. We're doing the Oktoberfest, the Revolution, uh, in the back parking lot of the brewery by the Big Outdoor Tanks, uh, September like 23rd, 24th, or 25th, or something like that, the Friday, Saturday. Um, that's the first time it's been held back at the brewery for, I don't know, Eight years or something like that. Sixteenth and seventeenth, I think. I leave for sabbatical on the fourteenth, and okay. I think Oktoberfest is the that's right. is the following weekend, I believe. Right. I, I only know that because I'm very hurt that I'm going to miss Oktoberfest. It's my favorite thing all year. Who's going to watch the barrels while you're gone? Uh, Victor Maravilla, uh, uh, my partner in barrel crime. Uh, he is enthusiastic and infinitely talented and hardworking. Um, I would not want to do this without him. Uh, in fact, when I used to have to do it without him, uh, I complained a whole lot to anyone who would listen <laughs> and a lot of people who wouldn't. Um, but yeah, he's, uh, he's amazing and he deserves so much credit. Wonderful. Marty, Josh, thanks so much for having us today. Thanks for sharing some beers and telling us a little bit more about Revolution. Our pleasure. Thanks for coming. Yeah, cheers, guys. Thanks for coming by.